0: they're having problems with kids now on zoom because they're taking screenshots of themselves doing this Mm -hmm. and then putting it up (laughs) and it looks like they're paying attention and they're not they're gone and so now our our school district is trying to make them come back in because all these kids have pictures of themselves doing this (laughs) and so I was like can some of these kids help me do that (laughs) what would that look like if in all my meetings I'm just like that they're like Fresnel is so engaged look at her (laughs) she's so interested in what we're talking about and I'm over there eating a bonbon
1: this is where the party ends I can't stand here listening to
2: Welcome to My Racist Friend, a podcast about the messy parts of relationships that help us grow together. I'm Amy McKees with Don Griffin and Dr. Francois Booker-Drew. Welcome. Good morning.
1: Morning. How you doing?
2: Good. How
1: are you? Oh, I'm frustrated. I can't get my computer to work this morning.
0: Oh, hey, no. I was there earlier. I was there earlier. Mine was doing the same thing. I'm looking forward to getting to know you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I told her your yes. life now. Yeah.
0: Yes. Congratulations.
1: <laughs> well, think. thank you.
0: Thank you. <laughs> it uh, sounds like you got a lot going on.
1: Trying to learn the new job and trying to. Te- yeah, it's yeah. Never mind. More That's about you. Though. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you could tell us just a little bit about what you do, because I'm, there's a lot.
0: <laughs> I'll, I'll keep it brief. I serve as vice president of community affairs for the state fair of Texas. And in my role, I usually joke and say I make corn dogs and funnel cakes, but really in my role, I'm responsible for our philanthropic giving and our community initiatives and educational programming. But in addition to my work there, I am really proud of being the co-founder of one of the first Black women's giving circles in Texas. Saturday, we're actually going to have our grant ceremony. We have raised over $50,000 of our own money, no corporate support, anything. It's just women putting their money in and then giving it to organizations that are led by Black women. Because what we do know is 0.6% of all giving in this country goes to organizations led by Black women. So mm-hmm. it's a small amount. So for many of us, it was how do we you know, use our funds to be able to make a difference but really changing the narrative around philanthropy. So I'm excited to be able to do that, both with my day job and, and trying to change the narrative there, as well as with this amazing organization we started in 2017.
1: So so Black Women Philanthropy, that's awesome. African-American women raising $50,000 of their own money in the middle of Texas is Wow, that's pretty powerful.
0: Mm-hmm. We're proud because you know you're not talking about folks that are independently wealthy, and many of them are in nonprofit spaces themselves. I love the fact that so many different types of women and the age groups, you know, are. It's just amazing to see women come together to do this and the camaraderie. But people are taking their own money and investing in something like that. It, it just speaks to the power of the collective brilliance that can make things happen. So I'm excited just to play a small role in in that space. Wow. When you talk about changing the narrative, could you say a little bit more about that? I think that there has been this idea that philanthropy is always rested in the space of being white and being male and being wealthy. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we recognize that everyday people are philanthropists. We've always used that title for folks, you know, that that are names on buildings and we go, oh, they're philanthropists because they've donated, you know, $7.5 million to X. But when you think about it, folks, especially black people, have always been philanthropists, whether it is. You know, I'm taking my money and I'm going to see the folks that are sick and I'm going to buy something for them. And I want to make sure that these kids have clothes. I mean, it's those little things of taking your, your time and your talent and your treasure and giving that of yourself. I don't think that we see ourselves in that way. And so for me, it, it's helping people from an individual level, begin to start seeing that you too, are doing that. It may not be where your name is on this building, but you are making an impact in your community by using those resources to create change and, and help. You know, but it's also at this greater level of foundations beginning to to really think about who we're giving money to. And I'm really fortunate because I, I get to sit in that space at work. You know, as we talk about representation, there aren't a lot of Black folks that typically have portfolios that are making major funding decisions. I don't even have a huge amount of money. That's not to say they don't exist, but giving then is based on these ideas of communities without really understanding those communities. And sometimes funding decisions are made based on stereotypes, based on what we think poverty is and not recognizing the true systemic issues that create those situations. And so for me, it's like, no, how do we use philanthropy that's not just writing a check and putting a Band-Aid on something, but how do we really begin to start impacting those communities, not with just money, but how do we use intellectual capital? How do we use relationships to begin to change the narrative around creating change in communities and centering the people that are being served and not looking at it like, oh, I'm a hero coming in and doing this. They already know what they need. So Mm -hmm. my goal is, and job, is to come in and how do I use those resources to support what you already know is needed in a community? So for me, it's really beginning to change the way that we see community and and see the people in those communities centering them. 90% of the organizations that we fund are led by people of color. Well, that's usually unheard of. Usually, you know, when I talk to other foundations, it's like, well, it may be 20% or, or 10 or less than that. And for me to be able to go, no, I'm consciously trying to make an investment in these grassroots organizations. And what we have created is this other narrative of, well, they don't have the infrastructure and support. Well, no, that's your job to to give them what they need to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So how do you make sure you're providing them resources and not creating barriers that make it more difficult for them to do the work?
1: It's funny that we already had those tools. Like we've been doing this for years. We had our own communities and they broke them apart. Yes. they systematically broke them apart, you know, whether it was because they wanted a better highway or what. So our communities, you know, we took care of, of our communities at one point in time and they broke them up.
0: I agree. And I think the tools for me is how do you give people access to those tables? to your point, when you're breaking up highways to, to separate communities and you're not um, giving people access and you allowing them to use their voice in those spaces, how do you begin to open up those doors and give people the access to get what they need? And what has happened so much in philanthropy is, you know, it, it's like I remember talking to one group. They're like, well, they need audits. I'm sorry. What nonprofit that's a grassroots nonprofit has you know, 10, $15,000 for an audit, they're doing the work. So if, if we see that, then what do we do as a funding community to give them what they need to be able to, to get that audit? And I'm not saying you don't want financial accountability and responsibility, but if we know that this is a nonprofit that's only bringing in 50,000 a year, How are they going to take that much out of their budget to be able to do that? So if you ex-funder have seven, eight, $10 million you're giving away, then how do you help them get access to that? And so many foundations are like, we only want to fund programs. We don't want to fund people. Mm -hmm. I don't know a program that runs without people. So when do we start investing in the people that are making sure our communities have the resources that they need? There is something fundamentally wrong the way that we see people who are trying to help in communities and fill in the gap. We're OK with other folks making billions off of people. Yeah. But yeah. then we look at nonprofit folks and say, well, no, you, you shouldn't have anything. That That's a charity. We want you to help your clients, but we don't want to help you. And these are the folks, you know, around the country that are day in, day out on the front lines, making sure people are eating, making sure kids are getting tutoring. We need to support those entities. And for me, that's what I want to change is the narrative and how we see those organizations and the people who lead them.
1: I mean, I know lots of white nonprofits where folks are getting (laughs) You know, even in this little city of Bloomington, if you are running Habitat for Humanity and you're the you're you're making six figures. Right. There
0: you go. But little bitty nonprofit that's down there in the neighborhood doing good work. Yeah. She's lucky if she's making 30.
1: Yeah. And if Mm -hmm. she is, people are going to be scrutinizing every little thing that she's got. Oh, don't, don't get like your you hair and nails done. You better, you better be <laughs> suffering if you're if you're helping people that are suffering, oh, you, 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 people that are suffering.
0: There you go. And so you need to be eating out the same line that the people you're helping. That's are eating. right.
1: That's, that's and, right. And don't
0: eat too much. Yes. Then you're stealing. Right. It is so unreal, the standard. And, and so as we talk about race, at some point, the light has to shine on, on philanthropy and how we see nonprofits mm-hmm. and, and the disconnect that we have that you're right. We're okay with larger nonprofits with their CEOs making hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then we look at these small ones and we're like, I don't want to give my money to
2: them if they're driving a nice car. They mm-hmm. need to walk to work.
0: mm mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> Kevin sent a thing about the United Way scandal in the 90s and wondered if that impacts the paying nonprofits a living wage. I think it
0: has, but I think there's a disconnect even in that because Mm -hmm. here is a more established entity that has resource compared to the mom and pop that's out there serving food and using their own resources to try to make a difference. And so why are they being penalized for... What happened to this entity? And mm-hmm. I'll say this: that wasn't reflective of every United Way either. Mm-hmm. That was that particular, you know, headquarters of the whole space. And and I think that they've made some changes, but I still think that there is a level of scrutiny that exists for these smaller ones that that level does not always exist. For those that are very large entities that are bringing in enormous sums of money, the questioning that they get isn't the same that I see some of these small grassroots nonprofits get about every single penny that they spend. But we we then begin to start questioning these people and demanding that all their money and the small nonprofits goes to programming. We don't say that on, on this side when they're administratively heavy. It's, it's just, wow, our expectations of poor people and our expectations of, of, of those who have resources and are wealthy. It's just the craziest thing. Mm-hmm. We want more accountability because we're giving you our money. And yet what people don't think about in philanthropy, most philanthropists, their money has been based on the backs of other people's work, especially yeah. some of these older ones. Much of your money came from, from slavery. And folks, you did not pay. So you were able to use their labor to then benefit from it. And then you want to decide how, where that money goes. Not those people should be deciding where the money Mm
2: -hmm. goes. Mm -hmm. When we first opened the Bloomington Center for Connection, I, I was looking up like, how can I, how can I offer more services to more people? What I heard was, well, you won't be able to pay people. You can only get grants to, if you wanted to buy supplies for a program, or if you wanted to make your space better for the program, but you couldn't get like a grant that would pay salaries for people because that's not what they're for. And I thought, well, that's not going to help then. Like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I had yeah. the same thing happen early in my career. I remember writing a grant to an entity and they said, well, we don't want to fund salaries. And mm-hmm. it, it was just bizarre to me that you have so many groups who don't want to do that when people have to be compensated and should be fairly yeah. for the time that they're putting in. And 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 we don't have those questions. It's just to me the hypocrisy. We don't have those questions of of corporations where people are making, you know, gazillions of dollars that that's like, well they have a product. Well, these people do too. Their product is making sure that people, you know, are healthy and safe and thriving. Mm-hmm. And we don't have investment in that, but that's okay. And it doesn't have to be either or. Why can't both of those thrive and do well so that our communities can benefit from it? Because when people are good, there is benefit for everybody. So you want to stop the suffering, then let's begin to start valuing people in a way that we're not going, well, you don't deserve it, but you do. Mm -hmm. When we change that and begin to start seeing the value of people, regardless of what they look like, where they come from, and start pouring into them and stop blaming them and going, well, they're poor because they want to be. I've never met a human being who goes, you know what? I love being hungry. That <laughs> put me on that. I want to starve to death. <laughs> Sign me up. That, yeah. ooh, I love that growling. Makes me good. I mean, who does that? No yeah, one it wakes up and says, you know what? I like not having money. I don't mm-hmm. care how poor someone, none of them go, I would love, I love this. This is, who. And And so there are these myths that philanthropy to me have been based in are mm-hmm. these ideas that are that are not true. So we give our money to certain types of poor people because it mm-hmm. makes us feel good, but but they have to be within this criteria of what we'll do, not recognizing the barriers and systems that have been in place that create these obstacles for people to really be the best of who they are. I'm glad you're out there shifting that narrative. I've been fortunate that I'm able to talk to funders and really help them think differently about the folks that they're working with. So Mm. it has been a gift for me to be in spaces where, you know, I'm able to say, hey, have you considered this? I know when... COVID happened, there was a funders collaborative that started here where we all start coming together and talking about how we can use their resources. And again, I don't have as much money to give as some other entities, but I'm always looking at ways to to leverage that and make it more. And mm-hmm. so it was a an honor and a gift too to be able to come into those conversations and say, have you considered this group? I appreciate that at least here, some things are happening. Is it to the degree it needs to be? Oh no, there's so much more that needs to be done and there need to be more people at the table. I don't wanna be the only one either. There need to be more folks of color and especially black folks that are helping make those funding decisions. We need to make sure that there needs to be more brown folks that are making those kinds of decisions. We need to make sure that there are more you know, people that are LGBTQIA that are at those tables. And so my point is, all of us need to be at these tables mm-hmm. making these decisions and saying, have you thought about this group? Because if it's only one type of person at the table making decisions and all they know is the same social network, they're gonna continue to make sure that those same people are awarded. When we Mm -hmm. start bringing different folks in, you're going to get a different perspective and become aware of things that you did not know exist. There's so much that goes on that many of us are unaware of. That does Mm -hmm. not mean it's not good work just because it wasn't on your radar. Mm.
1: Man, that's a good point, because you're forced to know what's going on in everybody's community.
0: You have to provide the intel for for everybody. (laughs) And it's so not fair. Mm -hmm.
1: Let me ask you another question. How do you think the church, the Black church, plays into philanthropy? How does it affect what you do in your space?
0: I'm in a unique situation because I attend a church that is so philanthropic. It is kind of a salt of the earth church. We don't have members that are very wealthy. I mean, we're doing six thousand plus meals a month. Oh my I god! I mean, during the the pandemic, I was so concerned about my pastor because. He has been out there every day working with people, and I was trying to get PPE to make sure that he and the volunteers were okay. He's allowed COVID testing on the the campus, and I remember when COVID first started, he put up a post on Facebook that just broke my heart. They were feeding the homeless, and this man said, I need a shower, Pastor. And he said, well, I can't open it up because how do we make sure that you're safe? And he said, "But I haven't had a shower in three weeks." So when they, and this is right when COVID started, he said, "I just want a shower." And my pastor said it broke him because he, even in that moment, he didn't even realize that he was able to go home in the midst of COVID and, and take showers. And that for this wow. population, that had stopped. And he said, let me figure it out. And he did. He was like, we're going to, you know, do the cleaning protocols, make sure that you all are able to come in because we have a shower complex and, and then there's a clothing closet where folks can come in and get clothes after they shower. It is an amazing place where I go and it is in the heart of South Dallas, which is like the hood here.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And so for me, I get to see philanthropy from that standpoint, where it's somebody who's in the community. We have an emergency room doctor who comes in and sees folks free of charge in that community. We've got a dental clinic that's come in and they're working with folks in that community. My pastor always says that if he can stop what is a $5 cold from being a $50,000 hospital bill, then that helps the folks in that community so they're not having to wait until they really get sick, that preventative care can happen. So I get a chance to see up close and personal where the church is really doing philanthropy. In other spaces where you may see the church being more internal and doing the philanthropy with their own members, I'm really fortunate to see it happen both ways where most of the people that are that are being served end up being church members. You know, I remember one Sunday, my daughter was sitting next to me and and there was this man who came in and he was dirty and she was like, oh, he smells. I said, but for grace, that could be us. But the fact that that man felt comfortable coming in that place because he had been served, I get to see what the possibility of what churches can do. I think the idea is, well, that's what the church is supposed to do. I don't think people recognize that they, too, are expending resources and trying to get resources to be able to do that. And and my pastor has done an amazing job with bringing in those kinds of resources and to see the people that are being touched. It's a gift.
1: So I didn't know how, where that was going to go, <laughs> because it really depends on the community, you know, in the sense that. And some that- are doing it. Some are not doing it. They're not reaching out beyond their walls. You right. know what I mean?
0: Right. I, I will say there are congregations that are doing great work in their that space. And I think there are others that are not and need to be called out for not doing what they are commissioned to do.
1: Now, this state fair thing, that's a pretty big deal because Texas State Fair is huge.
0: Yes. <laughs> huge it's huge yeah um now this past year we didn't do the event because of covid we did a drive-through and so it was a lot smaller but um typically we usually have over two million visitors in 24 days it's a massive event it's it's on 200 plus acres It's in Fair Park, which is a historic park in Dallas that has the largest collection of Art Deco buildings that were designed in the 30s for the World Fair. And so many of those buildings are still there. But it is a beautiful space that is being transformed and some great things are about to happen there. I'm in a really interesting space because state fairs typically aren't involved in philanthropy in this way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, typically they do their events and there may be some that have scholarships attached to it, you know, or they may do some some smaller things, but to really have a focus on trying to bring the community into it is not typically what a lot of fairs do. So it's been a really neat opportunity to walk in and, and design the way that we work in community because our fair is surrounded by the black community in Dallas mm-hmm. in South Dallas. And I often joke that I was so surprised that they even said yes, Russell, come work with us because I came in kind of going, hey, you know, we th- this community doesn't have this and this needs to happen. And just had a, a boss who was like, that's what we need. And I came in and really was given the opportunity to design the way our work looks, what our philanthropy looks like, the kind of programs that we do. And so, Amy,
1: it's so big. It's such a big deal that when a pickup comes out, they will introduce a brand new pickup at the <laughs> Texas Fair. Huh. Whether it's Toyota, whether it's uh, a, a Chevy, it's a really, really big deal. Deal.
2: interesting it is um, yeah, Sorry, I'm
1: massive. a car guy
0: that's why I know <laughs> so, so you gotta come this year because we're getting ready for this year we we are hopeful that we will be able to to have the the events like we've had it before knowing that they're gonna have to be you know safety protocols and things in place but just excited about the car show and all those <laughs> kinds of things that that we it's have big, I mean, it? it's big the car show is big I, it's big I mean, and then it's one of those events that it's hard to do it in a day. It takes a bit to walk the park and and do all the rides and the food and the different exhibits. It's a massive event, but it's a lot of fun. It's a great Texas tradition.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Folks that have never attended the fair who think that it's just for a certain demographic, when you go to that fair, if it's anything like ours, you see how diverse the state is. I mean, you will see Baby. Billy Bob and Chiquita <laughs> holding hands. Like, uh, I'm, I'm telling Baby,
0: you. Baby, yes.
2: You know <laughs> what I'm talking about,
0: right? But that's what I love. Like, I have different events going on during our fair. Me and my staff would just go out and just sit down and go watch. Because you're absolutely right. You, you will have folks who are ultra, you know, to this end of the spectrum, to the other end of the spectrum. And this is what's so cool. They're all walking and sharing the same space. Nobody is fussing and fighting. They're all eating their corn dogs. People can coexist in spaces Mm -hmm. with very different opinions Mm -hmm. when they're in safe spaces and they can be themselves and have fun. And that's the thing that it it always stuns me because I have seen all kinds of folks. Some people I'm like, those Walmart pictures have nothing on no. it, what what you'll see at a fair. You see people, and it's like, oh, okay, that's different. But I <laughs> love the fact that that it is a convener. When people are given the opportunity to be free, to feel safe, to feel protected mm-hmm. and enjoy themselves. Folks can get along because I have mm-hmm. seen all kinds of people walk out with different kinds of t-shirts on and no one is wanting to jump on them and fight them. They just look at them and go, and they keep doing what they do. There's some Mm -hmm. lessons there.
2: That's a good segue into something that I wanted to touch on. I just jotted down phrases that I really liked that you said that I thought we could jump into from this other podcast that I listened to with you this morning. And one of the things that you talked about was safe spaces to build compassion and relationships that stretch and challenge us. The other thing was we need moments of cognitive dissonance oh, yes. where we can wrestle with why we're uncomfortable. And I just, I wanted to chew on that a little bit together because that, that was good stuff. That was really interesting and challenging stuff. I don't think we,
0: we allow ourselves those spaces to be uncomfortable now. When we get uncomfortable, the first thing I think that we do is we shut it down and that's wrong. I don't like that versus going, why does that bother me so much? Because there are certain things that people say that you'll go, that's stupid. But when it, it causes this cancel culture, I think we have to really begin to start questioning, are, are we not taking the time to begin to start unpacking why those things are wrong and why they bother us? And at the end of the unpacking, they still may be wrong. That's Okay but I don't think we give ourselves the space to wrestle in those moments. We typically retreat back to what's familiar and go, no, that's wrong. That's what I was raised to believe. But is it quite possible that a lot of things we were raised to believe were wrong? And that's okay too. Why we don't have those moments of cognitive dissonance, I believe is that for many of us, there's a fear that what we learned was wrong and it will totally challenge our core values and our identity is this entire thing I've been taught or much of it may not be rooted in truth. Mm. Instead of having to deal with that and picking up those pieces and reconstructing and co-creating a new space and identity, it's easy to just go, I'm not dealing with that. That's wrong. That's easy to do that. It's hard when you have to sit and wrestle. I've had to do that where certain things that I was reared to believe that as I you know, came um, into different situations and that cognitive dissonance moment where I went, Whoa, that that I, I don't like that. That's uncomfortable. It's easy to run to what, what's comfortable and go, no, I don't want to hear that. Mm-hmm. The true work that's gonna happen if we really want to be better people is when we sit down and go, I need to unravel and take off all the layers that really cause me this discomfort and be okay that the answer may be very different than what we thought. And that doesn't mean the previous answer was wrong or bad. It might be different. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. I think we have conditioned ourselves to to believe that there is only one way. And I tell my daughter this all the time. You, You have to know that multiple realities can exist at the same time. We have conditioned a whole generation to believe it's either or, either or. And not to really begin to start going, is it possible that it's both and? Mm -hmm. That what I believe can be true in my moment and what you believe can be true in your moment, too. And I should be okay with that. Now, that's not talking about arguments and conversations that are harmful and hurtful to people and that don't give people the opportunity to be their best self and and what they were designed and created to be. That's another one. I don't think we give people the opportunity to to really mess up and, and then grow from it. You mess up and it's like, damn, you're out of here. Done. Not talking to you anymore.
2: <laughs> it fit with stuff that's been happening here. It feels like we've got some sort of binary, you're with us or against us stuff. I don't know if this has been your experience, but to me, it feels a little bit louder right now
0: than it, it has. Is. It's dangerous, in my opinion, what is starting to happen with the council culture. And so if you don't think the way that I do, God, you're awful. And there are some thoughts that are not very good thoughts that need to be called out. I'm not saying yeah. that, you know, I'm going to say something I'm going to I have. I'm going to do things that aren't necessarily right all the time because I'm I'm human. And I think we we have placed so much expectation on ourselves that then we do that to other people and hell, I can't keep up with all the expectations I have on myself. So how do I do that to other people? And so there's this place of not having forgiveness. At some point, you just have to know that they're stupid people. They just—it's just It's just going to be that. I think that you call out things that are wrong and that are not just, and you call that out. But at some point, you have to begin to start thinking about how do you invest your energy? Because that stuff will get exhausting. Mm, uh, It just, it wipes you out and it becomes a distraction from really doing the great work that you could do because you're over there arguing with idiots who, who, (laughs) at some point you're going to become one because you're back and forth with that logic. Yeah. Some stupid, you just can't understand. Yeah. And that we're all going to do something stupid.
2: Yeah. That's sort of our motto on this show. (laughs) When I go back and listen to some of the earlier ones, I've changed. I've learned stuff. There's things that I said that when I hear it now, I'm like, oh, oh, really? (laughs) Like, that's important. Mm -hmm. And what happens
0: if we just cancel you and go, Amy, those first couple episodes, you're out. We're not (laughs) talking to you. You don't deserve to eat. You don't need a job. We just tell you, get your ass gone. (laughs) How, How does that help you? And how does it actually help other people? Because then they don't get to see the growth and experience that in you. And then I think my concern becomes when we do that to folks when they made dumb decisions at 15 and 16 years old, and then they're 30 and 40 years old, and we're holding that. I know the person that I was six months ago, (laughs) let alone 16 years ago. Mm-hmm. I've evolved and there are some things that have changed and my opinions have changed about things. So if I know that happens to me, God, I've got to know that it happens for other people, too. I'd like to believe it
2: does. Like That's really an optimistic take. I think part of it is like this idea that people don't change. I don't know if they don't. I don't know what I'm like. I don't know what I'm doing. I think that there's some fallacies and what we believe about adult development,
0: too. You hear the expression old dogs can't learn new tricks. And I think research has shown that adults can change and their thinking can change and that there are plateaus that exist within people's thinking. So are there people who don't change? Sure. But there are people who do. And I think we miss the opportunity when we lump everybody in these same categories. But we do that for everything. Our brains are wired to categorize everybody in these little boxes Mm -hmm. because it's lazy, and mm-hmm. it, it it takes too much time to sit down and go, wait, I got to get to know Amy, you know, and, and understand <laughs> that she's not like that Amy. We do that with, with age and we look and go, well, you know, folks don't change. Well, they do. With time and experience, I promise you, life has a way of either you deciding to change or you're just going to stay stuck. And there are people who are stuck, granted. That's one of those right. plateaus they don't get, yeah. you know, through. But many of us are going to. You 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 can't exist in certain worlds and spaces if you don't. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have certain experiences that make you go, huh, I think we have to create these spaces for cognitive dissonance. And what happens is for many of us, when we are faced with information that's uncomfortable, our first response is to shut down and go, oh, I don't like how that feels. This is awful. I'm going to go back to what I believe because... I know that to be true, and you stay stuck in that space. I think we need to create these spaces where we hear information that we're not, we don't like, we're not accustomed to, and we wrestle with, why does that make me uncomfortable? What what is it about that? And so what you're seeing even politically is, when I don't like what you say, immediately I'm gonna just go versus sitting down and going, why does that make me uncomfortable? And you still may come out on the other side and go, I still think that's stupid. And that's OK. Right. Right. And, and I, I, I have to know in my own life that I have messed up. I have effed up. I have to give myself grace. So how is it OK that I can give myself grace and not extend that to other people? So what it says to me is we don't even give grace to ourselves. So that's why we don't give it to other people, because uh-huh. we don't believe that we're worthy of, of saying I'm going to mess up. I, I, I make mistakes. I can learn from them. We don't believe that about ourselves. We we definitely don't see that in other people that that possibility exists for them. So what you have is a whole culture of people who go, you're out, you're out, you're out. You don't matter. Don't want to deal with this. If you don't say what I say, then you're
2: going to hell. It's
0: problematic. Yeah.
2: Voluntarily inviting moments of cognitive dissonance—that's hard to do. Oh, it hurts. Yeah. Oh, it hurts, especially if you've been conditioned
0: to believe a certain way. That stuff hurts, but we need more of those moments.
2: Mm. Uh
0: You are not going to grow. And what you do is you close yourself out from the possibility of having amazing relationships with people who think very differently than you do. You know, and I'm a person of faith, but if I am to believe that people are created in the image of God then I have to believe that people are created that in the image of God, even if they look and, di- and, and believe differently than I do. Does that mean that they are bad people? Hell yeah, they are people who don't always do the right thing and who make bad decisions. But at the core of that, I still have to believe that there is some goodness that exists in, in people. Otherwise, what I'm saying is then there's no goodness in me. If I don't see it in them, then I'm really condemning myself too. And that's what I think we have lost is recognizing that our destinies are intricately together. And so if you don't do well, Amy, if Don, you don't do well, I'm only going to go so far. But what happens when you really meet your full potential? I'm going to benefit because what you do is you give me the space to be liberated to do the same thing. But as long as you keep holding me back from being myself, you don't get as far as you want either. So all we're doing is going in these circles of harming ourselves, trying to get back at somebody else. Waste.
1: you're preaching
0: you know that I'm gonna
1: just, miss a blessing right if you cl- if you close up you gonna you might miss a blessing right
0: we we do every single day because it doesn't yeah. come in the package we want it to come in
2: mm-hmm. I
0: have had some of the most amazing friends who were not people who looked like me who thought like me who lived like me amazing human beings that I could have missed the opportunity. One in particular, I'll never forget, I was teaching a class at UTA, and this man came and sat down with a cowboy hat, straw hanging out in these boots, and he sat in the class, and he looked at me like this the whole time. I was thinking, <laughs> is he going to kill me when class is over? What is going on? So we started talking. I didn't think he liked me. He was really checking me out, and so class is over. We started talking. He's like, hmm, yeah, I like you. You're good at this stuff. Let's go out to eat. We'd go out and I'm terrified. So we started hanging out all the time. We'd walk in stores and I'm with this six, you know, three cowboy. He's got spurs on. We're walking in these places and people are looking. Me and him are falling out laughing at each other and everybody is in awe. He was not what I thought he was going to be. This dude ended up being one of my closest friends. And then come to find out he wasn't a person of faith. I didn't stop being who I was. I remember one time we were out and he told me a situation going on. I said, I'm going to pray for you. And he's like, don't do that. So we get back together like a couple of weeks later. He goes, it totally changed. She said, you were doing that prayer thing, weren't you? (laughs) I was like, "Mm -hmm. it it works for me. You don't have to believe that, but I'm going to do it because I love you. We were so different. And yet I found that there were so many things we had in common. But I could have immediately blocked him out because of what he looked like and because of what I thought he represented. And he was so not that at all. Amazing human being. And so I have learned that you have to be very careful because you miss opportunities. And he was a gift to my life. I think what I'm suggesting is we have to be willing to give ourselves a chance and not have such unrealistic expectations on ourselves, because then we put that on other people. And that's mm-hmm. not fair. And we all miss
2: out when we do that. Yeah. I'm definitely better because of the people that have come into my life.
0: Oh, me too. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. if I was around people who are just like me and and. There's nothing wrong with that, don't get me wrong. You need those spaces for your identity to be affirmed and for there to be commonality. But at some point, we're all resharing the same information. The goal is to get from this idea of bonding social capital to bridging social capital. How do we connect to people or or linking social capital? Mm -hmm. How do we connect to people that are very different than we are? And we're sharing different information because now my blinders aren't like this. I have more information to begin to see more opportunities that may exist because I've got all these different ways of thinking that are now speaking into my life.
2: Mm. This has been so, it was so worth the wait. I have fantasies of um, getting you here for our summit, which is April of 2022. Oh, wow. You've got like 13 months to plan.
0: By that time, I will be running up to any in- Indiana because I will be so tired of being quarantined. I may not even need a plane ticket. I may just start walking straight up from Texas just to be able to see people and hug folks. I'm so ready.
2: Yeah. Oh gosh. Oh, cool. Me too.
0: I so. miss, I did not realize how much I was going to miss hugs and, and just having the energy of being in spaces with people. I think once we get out of this, you're going to see mm-hmm. complete strangers just walking up to each other and just hugging and kissing each other. <laughs> and then we'll have another <laughs> set of issues, you know, that that come from that. <laughs> <laughs> that'll be another conversation.
2: Oh yeah. We've got, we've certainly got more to talk about. Uh, that, that, that'll that. be a whole
0: nother conversation. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I joke with my oh single my friends. I'm like, oh wee, y'all get out of quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be girls gone wild. Woo.
1: <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I hadn't <laughs> even thought of that. I am like,
0: Oh, god. oh, oh it, it's gonna be amazing. Mark my words, between nine and twelve months from now, it's gonna be like, where did all these kids come from? It's when quarantine ended. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, need, man. We need to start building more schools right now, right? <laughs> right
0: now. Because <laughs> the babies are coming. <laughs> oh, my
1: God. oh, my gosh. That's great. I love it.
2: <laughs> All, All right.
1: right, y'all. I'm sorry. I got
2: to go. That's okay. Well, thanks, Dawn. I'll see I'm ya. glad we... Got you here, <laughs> Don. Nice meeting
0: you. We got to stay connected.
2: That's awesome. All
0: right. See ya. Bye. Bye, bye.
1: This episode of My Racist Friend is a production of the Bloomington Center for Connection, an organization using relational cultural theory to promote social change through connection. This conversation between Dr. Frostwood Booker Drew, Don Griffin Jr. and Amy McKees, LCSW, took place in separate locations in Indiana and Texas on Thursday, March 25th, 2021. And was edited for this podcast by Kevin McKees. Theme music lovingly sampled from Your Racist Friend by They Might Be Giants. Follow the Bloomington Center for Connection on Facebook and other social media platforms. You and your
0: when he figures out the cloning piece, ask him to give me a call. <laughs> <I'm> like, <"Well, laughs> I, 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 I would like in on, on that deal. I think mine would just do more stuff. <laughs> she <be> like, look <laughs> at what we're doing now. 24 hours. <laughs> really? I can do more than that. <laughs> yeah, nah, I canceled that. I don't know. <laughs>